0: is Creative Resistance, the podcast miniseries, where in each episode we explore how art and activism can be combined to resist power and affect social change. I'm your host, Sarah J. Halford. So this podcast miniseries is all about learning about artistic activism in a practical way so that we have the tools to get out there and actually start making the work. And a really practical problem that often pops up when starting any kind of project is just not knowing where to begin. Beginning truly is the hardest part of making anything. The mental preparation is the comfortable part, but the actual doing, not so easy. So, if you're stuck or just feel like you have too many ideas and don't know where to begin, here's an entry point that might help out start with the audience. Because artistic activism does not happen in a vacuum. So the change that we want to create can't be made by the artistic activist alone. If it could, we would have gone out there and made it already. But we need people to help rally behind the message and actively work with us to change the issue at hand. So this episode is all about those people, the various audiences that we need to get to know so that we can communicate effectively to them in order to begin working with them. And when it comes to audiences, our advisor to the podcast, Steve Duncombe, recommends that we get specific.
1: Oftentimes, and this is true, just as true for activists as it is for artists, we think about the audience in some sort of just blanket ideal of, well, I want to speak to everyone. The problem is, is that when you try to want to speak to everyone or uh, have some sort of effect on everyone... um, You kind of shoot too wide, right? And so the most effective way to actually reach people is just speak to one person. You can have a conversation with them for an hour, and you'll probably, you know, have a good chance of convincing them of something. But that's actually really inefficient. And so thinking about audience is a way of tacking between those two things, which is to say, if I want to change a policy, for example, which is a very instrumental um, objective, who is it better that I speak to? Who is it better that I perform for? Who is it better that I create some sort of piece of art for? The general public or policymakers? Now, it may be that the general voting public is the better audience, right? Because that general voting uh, public can actually pressure the policymaker and so on and so forth. Or it may be that it's better just to impress the policymaker because that policymaker can actually make a decision which will actually have real transformative effects. But the type of work that's going to have an impact on a policymaker is probably very different than the impact you're going to make on a small community in you know, rural Pennsylvania, which is very different, who is voting for that politician or that policymaker, which is very different than an urbane public in San Francisco or New York, which is very different than a low-income population in Miami. And to think that you don't need to think about that is sort of the ultimate of artistic or activist hubris, which is people are just like me. I just have to speak for myself and speak to myself. And that's a mistake.
0: Trying to define our audiences can get really problematic really quickly, because blanket assumptions on who those audiences are is both paternalistic and just ineffective. Getting by on assumptions is a sure way to miss out on the nuances of people. So in an effort to avoid this, Steve says that we can actually steal some moves from the advertising industry.
1: Advertisers think about audience all the time. Um, And they think about audience all the time because they're really interested in having an impact, Uh, not a great impact, um, but an impact nonetheless. And we need to learn how to think about audience as well. And the simplest way to avoid making assumptions about our audiences is to actually ask the audience and talk to the people you're trying to reach again, advertisers do this all the time. They have focus groups. Now, I'm not saying that artistic activists should have focus groups, but you can go to a bar and talk to people. You can go to a laundromat and talk to people and get an idea of what are the values that they hold dear, what sort of signs, symbols, and stories resonate with them. One of the things we do in our trainings, we do a cultural map of the terrain and a cultural map of the audience who we think we're going to reach, and Part of that is trying to figure out who these people are and what they value. So, for example, when we were in Texas, we did a whole bunch of brainstorming um, on Texans and what do they believe, what do they hold dear. And it was, you know, fascinating, you know, Texas exceptionalism, Texas machismo, pride in the state. Um, Was it God, football, and pickup trucks? I think were some of the three main signifiers we came up with. Um, And... It's important to know that those things are actually really important um, because then you can be able to speak in a language that people can hear. Now, what you do with that language, where you go with it, you know, is up to you. We use the idea of a football player to talk about the value of public education and to talk about the the need for public funding of public education because all of those great Texas football players all went to Texas public schools and so but that was an in that could possibly reach an audience that we wanted to reach which are non-political non-lefty regular everyday Texans.
0: I spoke to art activist Abram Finkelstein, who was one of the founding members of the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, also known as ACT UP, which is an organization of activists that has gone down in history as the most powerful force against the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s and 90s, or really a powerful force against those in power who had the ability to help or hurt those who contracted HIV and AIDS. Avram was also the creator of the renowned Silence Equals Death poster, which he'll describe shortly, but give it a Google if you've never seen it before. The Silence Equals Death poster is iconic in the history of artistic activism. But Avram has also spent a lot of time thinking about audiences and how to communicate with them.
2: First of all, I think art that isn't about communication is about class. So if you're an activist who's making art and what you're trying to do or say is not clear, it's you're no better than you know being in a Gagosian gallery. It's not it's not activism if it's not understandable. So clarity is essential to having an audience understand it. Think about museums, for instance. The the reason why none of the work that I do is well, not not none of it. Some of it's reached museums, but it was none of it was ever designed for museums is because what does it mean to be in a museum where people who are well educated don't even know what they're looking at? Like super smart people like who could be brilliant research scientists don't have no idea what they're looking at when they look at a uh, de Kooning painting. So what does it mean to be in an environment that's so densely coded that people on the top of, top, top of uh, access to Wealth and culture and education can't even understand it. So the most important thing is clarity. I think that vernaculars are used in advertising for a very good reason. People understand them. By and large, the simpler the better. So those are two completely key things. The third thing is knowing your audience. Of course, I've given you five examples of things that had multiple audiences. And there's where codes come in. How do you signal to multiple audiences at the same time? You use codes. If you look critically at every piece of advertising, every piece of political language, every journalistic report, everything is just packed with codes. So I think understanding codes is a, is a key thing as well. Audience, brevity, clarity, codes.
0: Codes, or as they're sometimes called cultural codes, are symbols and systems of meaning that are relevant to members of a particular culture. They imply things without spelling them out. So for example, there was an advertisement going around a while ago for a weight loss supplement for women with the words, Are you beach body ready above a thin, heavily airbrushed woman in a bikini? The advertisers appealed to the dominant cultural code for women in their market of thinness as beauty, using the thin woman as a symbol for what beautiful is. And if you buy their products, then you can be beautiful too. Now, there's nothing wrong with thinness, I'm not in the business of skinny shaming, but chemically-induced diets for the sake of thinness are just objectively bad for you. We figured this out by now. But that code is still incredibly relevant to us to this day, and the point is that we understand what the advertisers are trying to say without them having to spell it out. But some signs, symbols, and codes aren't nearly as obvious. They play upon things that we may not consciously realize that we identify with. These are often things that popular culture considers to be cool or are symbols of a specific group of people or subculture. So here's Avram on how he used signs, symbols, and codes in the Silence Equals Death poster.
2: The slogan, Silence Equals Death, is the grabber. It's the the big picture thing that raises questions about the poster that would entice you into a more intimate encounter with it and then on the bottom of the poster were two lines of text that were the situating text that was meant specifically for the gay community. Um, we relied on the code of the pink triangle, which was used in the concentration camps for gay men. Uh, it was what you would, they would give you to wear if you, if you were a gay man in the Nazi concentration camps. So, it sort of drew on gay codes, um, But it was also, we changed the color of the triangle and the direction of the triangle, so we were sort of creating a new idea about that conversation because we were a little squeamish about the idea of intoning victimhood. It was about empowerment, not about victimhood. We wanted the poster to also draw on fashion codes and music codes and sort of plug into all sorts of other ideas about what communities were. Um, it was meant to intone a knowingness which is why we were conscious to make it feel trendy so that you wanted to you know the again the the signals of capital are that you want to know about this thing you will be out of it if you don't so a lot of the graphic solutions were based on, on trends
0: So where does the media come into play in all of this? Well, surprisingly enough, the media is actually not an audience. Instead, it's a conduit for communication, sort of like a cable that connects a power outlet to a device. The kind of media that I'm referring to is basically what we consider to be the news. You can have old-school television and print media report on an action, or you've got all the various platforms of social media, which these days is not only a conduit through which we share our lives, but can also act as an additional source of news. When it comes to artistic activism, some groups, like the Illuminator, rely on social media for the majority of their audience communication. Nobody may be around for the action, but if they snap a picture or video and post it, social media will then bring the action to wherever the audience is. Power outlet to device. The reason why the Illuminator has so few live audience members view their work is because they present their artistic activism in the dark of night, which makes them sound totally badass, and they are. Illuminator uses large-scale projections to communicate their message. In fact, you've probably already seen their work online. They're the creators of the 99% symbol of Occupy Wall Street. Typically, they'll project on buildings, which makes it kind of like graffiti, but also not at all like graffiti because it disappears as soon as they turn the projector off. I spoke to Mark Reed and Rachel Brown, two members of the Illuminator, who had some things to say about spectacle and virtual public spaces.
3: Sometimes I refer to us as like David and Goliath. Like, like that's one of the like we have this little slingshot. It's this projector in a van and a bunch of people. And one of the way one of the things that we can do is is kind of intervene within that spectacle in a way that generates excitement or images that are exciting to people that then get shared. And we have this thing called social media and the internet now, which is you know. A, can be you know a counterpower to the information industry if you have the right slingshot and you can use it effectively um, you can kind of try to you know change the conversation in some way. One way that we continue that we talk about it like we go into physical public space, um, you know intervene there and make a spectacle and like contribute to that conversation kind of you know turning changing the story as Mark was talking about you know. From the mainstream, and then we take that by documenting our work with photography and video, um, and we put that on social media to intervene in the virtual public space that a lot of people in this information culture that we live in, um, that's where people are spending a lot of their time.
0: The unique thing about social media is that we can see the conversation that's happening because of the artistic activism right before our eyes. So it can help us to better understand what resonates and what doesn't with our audiences, what pisses people off and what people like, and can help us fine-tune our audience communication. It can be difficult to reimagine the media as a conduit for information because these days the media is talked about as if it's an audience in and of itself. But think of it like this. When the Illuminator takes a picture of the work and posts it on Facebook, it's not for Facebook itself. It's for the people who are going to see it on their timelines. Those people are the audience. Similarly, when photographers take a picture for a specific media outlet, the publishers are gonna choose an image based on what resonates with their audiences. Maybe it didn't used to be this way, but it certainly is that way now. But the takeaway here is that as important as getting media attention is, in artistic activism, we want the media attention for more than just attention's sake. We want a pathway to audiences far and wide. Diana R. C., the creator of Polidoki, who we heard from in the last episode, gave me some insight into how she thinks about her audiences. I always try
3: to think from the perspective as like the audience is smarter than I want to believe that they are. And I think that comes out of a lot of sort of personal feelings, sort of like personal sort of reactions to art, where I feel like there's a lot of stuff where it's like, I'm either treated, I feel like a lot of artwork either treats people like they're completely stupid, (laughs) or... Like you look at something that's kind of almost like you need a PhD for it, mm. just to look at it. And, um, and I like to, I try to think somewhere in the middle. I, I want to think of, I like to think about, okay, how can I, I need to be able to simplify this down in a way that it's understandable, but it still has depth. I think anytime I ever make anything, I kind of think about like, like what would, <laughs> what would my brother or my mother think about this work? They have no sort of inclination towards art. I think the only time they've ever been in a museum is if I've dragged them there. And for me, it's this point, it's like, if these people, if my, if like my brother or my mom can understand this, and it sort of spans, you know, spans two different generations, if they can understand this, then I'm in the right, I'm at the right point in the work.
0: So Diana says that she wants artistic activism that's understandable, but still has depth. Beatrice Glow is an artist who shows that it's actually possible to strike this balance. She uses educational installations to tell the unknown stories of everyday objects like nutmeg that have had a significant influence on world history. Beatrice introduces counter-narratives to some colonized national myths, which is pretty deep stuff, but she does so through art that uses codes that are both understandable and engaging.
4: i thinking about where I recently worked on the medium of what is perfume. Um, through creating sort of this uh, pop-up perfume store that takes on the aesthetic of a perfume store in a shopping mall, but through there I went into the history of each scent and the plant behind them and the ways in which they played really critical roles in the formation of um, globalization right during the age of discovery. Uh, so like thinking about, I talk about Nutmegs and how that led to the trade of the Spice Islands with New York. And I talk about black pepper, right? After the English lost their first colony of uh, rum in Indonesia, they went to India and um, said, all right, well, then we're going to conquer this market, right? So that led to a whole other wave of colonization for at least five centuries, right? So I kind of talk about these domino effects in a perfume shop and that kind of Allures an audience that I find normally wouldn't go into an art space uh, because art space presents this hierarchy and there it's broken down into consumer language which is I think becoming a universal international language at this point. Mm -hmm. So how do we find new ways of reaching out to folks is the biggest challenge I think artists face today.
0: So audience is a key element in artistic activism, and incorporating the audience into the work is what can take the art from personal project to social activism. So here's a recap of some helpful things to keep in mind. First of all, we need to figure out who the audience or audiences are and get as specific as possible. Then, we need to investigate what kinds of signs, symbols, and codes resonate with them so that we can make artistic activism that's understandable to the people that we're trying to reach. On the next episode of Creative Resistance, we'll talk about tactics and strategies, and we'll hear from art activists about the creative ways that they've used their art and their take on what works for them and what doesn't.